This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen. I'm Leslie Hankson. And I'm Sarah Patterson. Today, our guest is Mary Beth Stout from the University of Northern Iowa. Mary Beth recently published Girls Just Want to Have Fun Too, Complicating the Study of Femininity and Women's Leisure in Sociology Compass. Today, a case for the sociology of leisure. Our discussion was recorded on November 12th, 2019. All right, we're here with Mary Beth Stout from the University of Northern Iowa. Mary Beth recently published Girls Just Want to Have Fun Too, Complicating the Study of Femininity and Women's Leisure in Sociology Compass. Welcome, Mary Beth. Thank you. And we're also lucky to have Sarah Patterson from the University of Michigan. Hello. Sarah's a demographer, a postdoc at University of Michigan, and another member of the sociology podcasting scene, mm-hmm. and a great follow on Twitter. Sarah, what's your uh, spatter what's your search? <laughs> my, spatter my, search. Yeah, my old coworker actually made that up for me because it's partly Sarah Patterson and partly research. So yeah, yeah, I, I see you, you. You're going for it with the spatter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's good. Anyhow, totally worth the fall. And thank you very much for. Uh, coming on the show yeah, today. Yeah, thank it's you for having to... me. Oh, for sure. So the backstory for this episode is that I often have exchanges with Sarah over Twitter. I love following her account. <laughs> and she recommended Mary Beth as a podcast guest. And Mary Beth studies the sociology of leisure, feminine leisure in particular. And in your recent, you know, when you first hear sociology of leisure, the first thing you think of is like, frivolity or not important or whatever but you dig below the surface there's a lot going on here like a lot of the core issues that people deal with in their day-to-day lives and uh i'm very grateful sarah for you introducing me to mary beth and mary beth do you want to just give us sort of an introduction to your work like not all of it but like this this work on the sociology of leisure and how there there's so much more going on here Sure. I think that in the U.S., we kind of think of leisure as a dirty word. We're really invested in paid work. And so we're envious of people when they have time for leisure, as it would be. And so this gets even more complicated when we're talking about women engaging in leisure and we're talking about women engaging in certain kinds of leisure. So we are usually okay when women are engaged in leisure with the family or for the family, but when women are taking time for their own leisure pursuits, we kind of uh, bristle at that. So I get right in there. (laughs) Well, why don't we start off with your appearance? Tell us about your uh, the work you've done with quilters and handicrafters and the Red Hat Society. (laughs) Sure. So I study the feminine. So I study women and I don't study women in a traditional sense. So a lot of the work that uh, we can look at developmentally within the sociology of gender, is we look at how women are faring compared to men in paid work fields. And that's really important work and lots of other really super qualified people are doing that. I'm more interested in the unpaid aspects of how women are fighting for leisure, time and space in their own homes. So quilting becomes a space where that, where the inequality really pops up. The tagline for a lot of my quilting talks is quilting causes tension in the home. Mm -hmm. And that's funny because of what we think about quilting. Mm -hmm. And so we we often don't know that quilting is a multi-billion dollar global industry 
that some of the major shows in the United States bring in uh, the most money that city will produce. And, you know, that's the biggest money maker that that city will produce. Houston is a really big site. They just had the quilt festival uh, at the end of October and Paducah, Kentucky will have another show in April. And so these are two of the big spaces. Why this interests me is because these are female dominant spaces. They are cultural actor spaces and the cultural actors are women. And another thing that, that I think is amazing about quilting as an example is, you know, historically, you know, women who quilted, part of their labor was actually helping to maintain, you know, family lore, family history, right? Documenting births, right? And creating, you know, creating these things of art, right? That have woven within them, right? The history of the family so that that's not lost, right? And that seems to be incredibly important work, right? And so the idea that it would cause tension, you know, Right. And so the reason why it does cause tension is because of when it happens. So I would be an unusual quilter. So I am a quilter and I can speak about um, sewing and quilting. I'm a sewist. I knit, I quilt, I crochet, I do all those kinds of things. And so, but I learned how to do that when I was six. So it's a very important part of my life being a creative actor and being creative, that kind of thing. Most of the women who keep the quilting industry going learned how to quilt at middle age Mm -hmm. or they picked it up or they finally found time to do that so for example when I graduated from high school my parents gave me a sewing machine as a gift and I brought my sewing machine to college with me and I made a lot of money as a side hustle mending other people's clothes because they didn't want to learn how so that's a very unusual and most women learn how to do this at midlife when their kids are getting old enough to leave the house they want to do this for all the reasons that you're talking about leslie or they want to start that in their family or they're ready to make new friends and that's kind of where red hat society comes in knitting and sort of the stitch and bitch culture also comes in that way so you know as we age we we see that the number of friends that we have decrease for lots of really normal reasons and uh these three practices are places where women can make new friends that are based in the subculture. And some of the things that they do uh, upsets the family. So they're taking time and attention. You're taking money that might be theirs. It might be household money, but they're also engaging in subculture, the subcultural behavior. And I I started using Howie Becker's work on deviant uh, Mm -hmm. illicit drug users it's very similar. Quilters mm-hmm. don't really like that part of <laughs> work, understandably so. But one of the things that quilters do is they call quilters and knitters, they talk about their excess unused raw material as stash. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always talk to my criminology students and I say, you know, you really do have to know about quilters. And they're like, well, whatever, Dr. Self, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, what happens if you're kind of sitting in your patrol car and you see two middle-aged ladies and they they greet each other and they say, how big's your stash? Do you think they're talking about drugs or do you think they're talking about cotton? And they're like, <laughs> um, like they're talking about cotton 99% of the time. And so that's why you have to know about this. Also, women are over 50% of our population globally. Should we be aware of what they enjoy doing? Should we be aware of what they enjoy doing as they live longer than men? So how come we're not studying more about what women are doing and wanting to do? That's kind of where I come from. 
You talk about the struggle over resources, and I, I thought that was such an interesting topic. You know, whenever you're in a marriage or a relationship, it's expected that you're going to uh, put time, not just money and time, but you'll relinquish living space. And you talk about how, you know, and then it's a bank account and people can draw out of it. And your research talk, you know, focuses on these sort of resource distribution dynamics. And you get to the question of, is the elephant in the room, quote unquote, question overarching your research is, is family life good for women? Can you tell me, like, how has your research, you know, led you to ask questions about whether, you know, whether family life, as we've construed it, is good for women or, or something that hurts their well-being? Can you, can you lay out the linkages for us? Sure. Well, we can look at, at Kozer's work on greedy institutions. And I think that a couple of people have used this framework to talk about problematic relationships. And that's certainly not how Kozer intended it. That's certainly not how I'm intending it. But I do think that kind of reading the fine print before you go in is really important. And a lot of the women who decided to begin a hobby at midlife, they're changing the rules. They just don't see it that way, nor does their family. And so the other thing about quilting is that, and why it's problematic for some families, is because you're practicing leisure, leisure right in front of your family. And so mm. it, it's in your face, at-home leisure, and it can be twisted in a way. So some women say, well, would you like me to make dinner, or would you like me to make this quilt that we're giving as a gift for a wedding we're attending in six months? Mm -hmm. So some Sometimes it's framed in a way that you can't say no to it. And uh, sometimes it's never framed that way. So there are some women that hide everything that they do. They won't even tell people in their lives that they do this because they don't want to be uh, misconstrued in some way. And so thinking about the family as a greedy institution, yeah. we can look at some of the recent studies about leisure time. We can look at some of the recent studies about Women in the opting out culture. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a book no. Mo and Shandy. I'm trying to remember it. It's um, something about 100 hour couples or something. I, I can get the title later. But they talk about how during one of the econ recent economic crises, heterosexual couples at a certain level, economic level, the women decided it was more financially sound to stay home. And immediately they were put right into a situation where what they were doing was not paid for mm -hmm. and they had to deal with what that meant and they found it to be really problematic and troubling mm -hmm. so i think that you know if we go back to marx and we think about the ways in which industrial changes have split the private and public sphere we have things that have currency have actual physical currency behind them and we have things that have emotional currency and i think that we do not value emotional currency as much as we do physical currency, right? We know that. That's, mm. that's that's what we do with that. We also can add Weber and we can think about work and we can think about, you know, we think about Ritzer's interpretation. Uh, we can think about if it gets done fast, it's more important. Quilting does not do that. Knitting does not do that. Red Hat Society twists everything on its head and says that women are more valuable the older that they are. And so that scares a lot of people as we are constantly trying to purchase many, many goods to look younger than we are. <laughs> so quilting actually reveals, at least in the study that I did, all of the studies that I did, uh, whether it's young women who are not married, who are fighting with their boyfriends about 
how can you watch TV and knit at the same time you're not paying attention to me? Whether it's women who are married, who are in heterosexual relationships, they have kids, they have everybody out of the house for, you know, half a day, they have to get everything out of a closet, put it in the kitchen, and then they kind of get hassled by their family because dinner's not ready. You know, you have to really think about who gets space. So a lot of times my students will say, well, the kitchen is the woman's space. And I'm like, well, (laughs) or they'll say the bedroom is the woman's space. And I'm like, well, so we can look to Daphne Spain. So Daphne Spain is a feminist geographer and she has done some historical work on the workshop. She's looked at American houses, blueprints over time and the space that gets allocated to an individual is typically for the kids or it's for the husband. And again, I'm only talking about heterosexual families. So we can think about when does the woman get her space? And then that brings us into Virginia Woolf. So (laughs) some of the women, the minority of of women in my study, it doesn't matter how wealthy they are. It doesn't matter how poor they are. It doesn't matter any of it. The, The minority of the women in the study get their own space and they get it either through scheming ways they're single or they are very, very upfront and have direct conversations with their partner. So if we think about how women are socialized to behave, we cannot be surprised that there is tension in the home, that there is this elephant in the room and that we as sociologists kind of devalue the research on unpaid creative work that's feminized, that's feminine, that's done mostly by women. I mean, it makes sense. So so, so I have a question for you, right? And like, you know, not to reveal too much about my own personal life, but, um, but like, for example, if I were making a quilt, right, and my kids and even my husband could see that I had this thing that they could touch and they could look at its progress and they could say to themselves, oh, this is going to be a present or it's going to be going to make our house look nice, you know, they might grumble a little bit but they would be much more okay with giving me room and time to do that than say, you know, if I just got like the new, like Bernadine Evaristo novel, right? And I've been waiting for for it to come to the United States and I'm so excited and I sit down and like, I've already cleaned the entire house for the weekend. Mm -hmm. I just want to sit here and read this book. And, you know, five minutes into it, people are like, what are you doing? Where's this? Help me do this. For me. Right? Yeah. No, exactly. Like that <laughs> is seen as as unimportant, right? It's extraneous, right? Mm-hmm. And that tends to cause much more sort of friction in the house when I just say, okay, everyone, I just want a quiet 30 minutes, right? That is because there isn't any material that they can see, right, or touch, that seems to cause even more friction. So do you find that, you know, that the more material or the more uh, concrete, right, the final product of the thing is possibly the less tension down the road um, for women or no? Well, sure. I think that's possible. And I'm trying to think back to the variety of women that I've talked with. And so I think that it has less to do with being a quilter and more with how you talk about things in your family anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the people in the family can connect what you're doing right now with, I'm going to get this later. You know, of course, there's going to be a different understanding around that. It's, I think when, and we can look also at 
I'm glad you brought up the reading example because Janice Radway's book, Reading the Romance, uh, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. yep. the 1990s was such an important book. Uh, she was really influential in in my work too because it's defining fun, defining leisure, and what the woman herself defines as leisure, right? And so nobody else has to even think this is fun. And that gets me back into my Red Hat Society research. When I first started doing this work, and I was talking with people about it, and this is collaborative work that I've done with other colleagues in, in other disciplines, people would say, well, that's not fun. <laughs> that's dumb. Like, that's dumb. You're studying those women who wear red outside and together, and they laugh a lot. And I'm like, yeah, that's, they think that's really fun. Mm. And they're like, well, we don't think that's fun. And I'm like, it doesn't really matter if you think it's fun. <laughs> they think it's fun. You know, do you think bull riding is fun? And they're like, bull riding? <laughs> well, you don't have to think bull riding is fun either, but some people do think bull riding is fun. And so it's really, you know, leisure is in the eye of the beholder. And there's some leisure pursuits like downhill skiing that we're all like, oh, okay. Some people might be like, oh, knee injury, ouch. But, you know, for the general public, there are certain forms of leisure that we're like, eh. and there's some that we're like, yeah. So I kind of am in the, the latter category in, in a lot of cases. When I first started doing this research and was putting together my dissertation committee, one of my advisors was like, I hate sewing. I'm like, okay, that's nice. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, We've talked about that for a long time and turned to find out, you know, 15 years after I'm done that she had a massive sewing accident before, before, and almost, you know, lost a digit. I'm like, sure, that's going to, that's going to cloud your understanding of why this matters. I promise I'm not going to ask you to sew with me. I'm not going to ask <laughs> you to, you know, that kind of thing. But people have very, the important thing is that people have really personal reactions to this kind of activity that they wouldn't necessarily have with something else. The same happens with knitting. So I've had some people who are like, well, you know, I think knitting's dumb and I've never learned how to do it. I'm like, I'm not asking you how to learn to learn how to do this. Although that's actually being used in a lot of new corporate events that they, they mm -hmm. set people down and they're like, you need to learn how to knit and we're going to do this for an hour, put your phones away. And so linking knitting to mindfulness is sort of a new way to think about this. But women, you know, there was something this fall, there was a woman, young woman at at a college football game. She was sitting up in the stands and she was knitting during the whole game. And it you know, I'm not huge into social media, but I did see that and it got posted and it went viral and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, yeah, I came to the game because one of my faculty members was being honored at the football game. And that's the only reason I came. She would, she had no interest in football. <laughs> she just sat there and knitted her heart away until it was, you know, halftime. And then she was like, okay, now I'm going to pay attention. And so football fans who are enjoying their leisure are not going to understand that. But here is a knitter who doesn't understand anything nor wants to about football. Can they, you know, respect each other's space? Yeah, they totally can. And so I think that that's, you know, kind of what some of my research is doing. It's saying, let's understand leisure from the perspective of the person doing it. You don't have to like it, but huh. let's understand what she's getting out of it. So I have a question, right? And because I've been wondering about the answer to this question for a long time. So as you mentioned earlier, there actually has been, you know, I think a significant uptick in the number of not just, as you say, women in later life saying, oh, I'm going to pick this up as a hobby, but also like millennials and even Gen Zers who were like, oh, I want to do this, right? Primarily women, right? Mm -hmm. And my question is, 
are they doing it because it's seen as feminine leisure, right? Or are they doing it despite the fact that it's seen as feminine leisure? That's a really great question. They're mm-hmm. coming at it from a third wave feminist perspective. Mm-hmm. So they are appreciating the feminine creativity. They're not necessarily articulating it that way, but they're they're valuing DIY. They're valuing the environment. They are anti-capitalist in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And they don't want, and some of them are doing it for mental health. Mm-hmm. But in the mid 90s, there was a book called Stitch and Bitch mm-hmm. that came out. And that sort of changed the way that we think about stuff. There was also a marked uptick in reporting about women and men knitting together in coffee shops. That was kind of happening too. And then also the there are a couple of um, organizations within knitting and crocheting that, that have worked really hard to try to get people more involved. So that kind of stuff is going on. I have an article that I wrote with some students with young women, young single women, and the title of it is something like, when the zombies come, at least I know I won't be naked. <laughs> so, you know, they talk about how useful this is and how self-reliant they are and, and that they're doing it because it brings them peace, because they want to make a handmade gift. So in some ways, they're very much like midlife quilters, but in other ways, they're, they don't want to buy someone a gift. They want something more personal. They want to feel like they've accomplished something. So it's not necessarily those family ties that quilters are using. It's really more about, you know, environment and anti-capitalism and and making a thoughtful gift for someone. So I, it was kind of interesting to me to read it because I study caregiving Mm -hmm. and you talk in your article about quilting as care work. And the interesting thing for me is a lot of the pushback I get on my research is that, I mean, studies very infrequently measure caregiving very well. You know, there's a lot of efforts going on right now to do that better. But one of the things that comes up is a lot of men will say, I go to the football game or I watch the football game with my kids. And that's how I sort of care give for them in that moment. And so I sort of saw that in parallel to the quilting is care work. And I was hoping you'd talk more about that. Yeah, I actually argue that quilting is care work for the self and for others, because women are nothing if they're not multitasking. Mm-hmm. And so they talk about how they they are better moms if they get some time to quilt. And really, that means I want some time alone. It just needs some time. You know, mm-hmm. I could be reading, I could be whatevering, but I just need some time. I'm going to come back a better person. So when you quilt or knit or crochet and things are going well, your heart rate goes down and your pulse goes down and you calm down. So it can be very meditative. meditative. So women are taking care of themselves and then they also are typically thinking about who they're going to give that gift to when it's finished. Mm -hmm. And they talk about stitching in the love, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a way to understand the multifaceted components of self-care and some self-care can be tiring, right? So if you go to the gym, you're taking care of yourself and you're like, I'm doing this so I can wear myself out so I can go to sleep tonight, you know, and that's great. You're not really doing anything for anybody else, right? Quilting, you are eventually making something for someone else, or you're ending up with a big pile of UFOs. I have one last question I've been thinking about. So we've started uh, what we thought was an economic project when we were studying podcasters, and it turns out no one makes money in any of this. And (laughs) we realized that like these people are doing this as a hobby. And one question that racks my brain is like, why do people do this stuff? 
like it's so easy to conceptualize pursuing an activity when you can think of it in terms of being rewarded for money. But when you pull out that money, it becomes much more complicated to like explain why people do what they do. Through your experience studying leisure, what, what drives people to, to engage in those types of activities, unpaid ones? I think it makes their brain happy. I think it it's fun. It's how they define fun. And they do it even if whether or not they got paid or not. I think that they love it so much. So, you know, I sort of think about it in my own daily life as sort of the teaching high. Do you guys get that? When you teach? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. But it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's a good day, you know, I'm like, this is excellent. And I'm so happy. And you don't get that with writing. You might get it, you know, in more in, more sporadically. That's how I feel on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so if you if you have a great day in teaching, then you're like, I I can't even fake this. I can't replicate it. I can't recreate this again. And I think that for the right leisure, the right matchup, I think that that's the same thing. So if you talk to somebody who enjoys downhill skiing, at the end of the day, they are just top of the world, right? So they're they're so stoked. They're so happy. It's why they exist. And the same thing can be for any kind of leisure that can be podcasting. So some people love it. They love podcasting. And if you try to frame it in a way that they're going to make money, it's going to change it. And then it's, you're going to have to count things. Cause I then said, I did a little bit of work with paid artists for a while to try to get at that very question. Mm. And it becomes you have to separate some work out so that you have bread and butter. You have to have enough bread and butter in your podcasting to make money. Otherwise, you can't do the stuff that's fun. Mm -hmm. So in talking with craft artists, woodworkers, glassmakers, potters, ceramicists, et cetera, they have bread and butter that they do every single day so that they can live. And they oftentimes have you know, other support. Sometimes I, I think that the economic rationale is just a rationalization to construe a leisure activity as an investment activity. What do you think of that? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people think you're successful if you make money off this leisure, you know? So once mm. there are some women who turn this into a business, but then it changes and it doesn't change the respect they're necessarily going to get from their family, you know? It's still got those components to it left. So I think we like to work in this country in a way that we we like to brag about it. So I always ask, I ask my students, what would happen if we instituted a daily nap, required national nap, mm. right? I'm in. So it's, <laughs> it's we frame it in a social problem. Like we don't have enough naps, we're tired and make up acronyms and things like that. And so I said, what would happen if we tried to get a nap? They'd be like, what time? I, I said, we'd agree on all this stuff. It'd be fine and everything would shut down and whatever. And they always come back with, we, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't nap. We would we'd read through our naps. We'd work through our naps. We'd do it in secret. We'd start acting deviantly. And then we would come back and brag about it. You know, it's sort of like the <laughs> mid-semester, end of the semester. How many days have I gone without sleep brag that students do? You know, <laughs> I've been four days without sleep. And I'm like, you're getting close to danger. Have some water. Please take a nap. You know, so I think that our approach to work is very, you know, if we go back to Ritzer, right, we're going to. We're going to really plow through it. We're going to get done fast. We're going to get done best. We're going to, you know, whatever model you need to look at. 
but to sit and enjoy what you're doing, to enjoy your work, I think is, is partly why our profession has a lot of suspicion around it. And so trying to interpret, especially if you're a first gen, trying to, in, to interpret what you do as a faculty member, you know, to the outside is pretty difficult mm-hmm. to not get like cool. But, <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Mary Beth Stolp from the University of Northern Iowa. Her recent article is Girls Just Want to Have Fun Too, Complicating the Study of Femininity and Women's Leisure in Sociology Compass. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie Hickson and Sarah Patterson, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.